It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 244 for May 29th, 2011, Memorial Day weekend, recorded May 27th. Maybe you're thinking about a new operating system. Well, you're not alone. People become frustrated with their computer and conclude that they would be better off with a different operating system. Windows users move to Macs or Linux machines. Linux users may choose a different distribution. Mac users, though, seem generally to stay put. If you're thinking about Linux, I thought I'd mention a few things that you might want to consider. First of all, your Windows programs generally won't work under Linux. You can install Wine if you want and see if you can get your legacy Windows application to work. But Linux doesn't run EXE files by default. You can't migrate existing applications. You can't download applications made for Windows and expect them to run on Linux. Linux is not Windows. If that bothers you, don't even think about making that switch. And if you're thinking about Linux, you need to select the right distribution. There are lots of them. Linux isn't one monolithic entity. You can find dozens of Linux distributions, perhaps hundreds. Some are better for servers. Some are better for workstations. Some are better for geeks. Some are better for non-geeks. One of the most popular and easiest to use distributions is Ubuntu. It's the one that I talk about, the one I use, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily the one that's right for you. Do your homework. You may get a bit of a shock from the directory structure. Linux and also the Mac OS don't have drive letters. They have mount points. You'll find lots of directories in your Linux file system. Directories that have names, you might wonder, what the heck are those? Slash bin, slash usr, slash sbin, slash etc., slash var, slash temp, slash opt, slash mnt for mount point. Boot, lib, server, well, keep your hands off those until you understand what they're used for. All of your files, the ones you'll be working with, should be in a directory called home, followed by your username. Key point with Linux, don't be root. That's root, not rude. Well, don't be rude either, but definitely don't be root. Most Windows users create an account that's in the administrator's group, so they think that they should log on to a Linux machine as root. Don't. If you need to do something that requires root credentials, use the sudo command, which stands for superuser do. That allows you to elevate your account's privileges temporarily. Keep in mind the root user can do anything to any directory, and that includes deleting the computer's entire file structure. If you're thinking about moving to Linux because it's invulnerable and impermeable, well, keep in mind that vulnerabilities do exist. Generally speaking, Linux is more secure than Windows. In part, this is true because Linux is a smaller target than Windows. Windows still has 80% or more of the desktop market, but it's also true because Linux and Unix, which is the base on which Apple's OS X is built, both were designed with security in mind. Windows was based on an insecure file system and an insecure operating system. 
Over the years, Microsoft has made Windows much more secure, but still missing is the owner-group-world set of permissions that are hallmarks of those X systems, Linux and Unix. If, as a new Linux user, you're tempted to forget about security, don't. If you listen to some Linux experts, they'll try to convince you that antivirus applications aren't needed. They say this is true because of Linux's strict file permissions system. What they omit is that it is possible to run a text command that tells the operating system to delete all the files on the system. And that's probably something you'd prefer to avoid most of the time. So you do need an antivirus application, something that keeps track on the comings and goings of data. And you need a firewall. And backup is every bit as important on a Linux machine as it is on Windows or OS X. And once you've installed Linux, the very first day you'll start seeing that there are updates. In fact, you'll probably see updates every day. Some Windows users won't install any new version of Windows until Service Pack 1 has been released. These same users won't install any Service Pack until it's been out for at least 30 days, or 60 days, or 120 days, or pick one, 365 days, maybe 27 years, whatever. Whether this is reasonable or not with Windows, I'll leave up to you. But if you're using a Linux system, you want the updates as soon as they're released. So leave your old Windows prejudices at the door. If you decide to do anything with Linux, let me know. I like hearing stories from people who are giving it a try. Kind of along the same lines, you've decided you need a new computer. Will it be a tablet or a netbook? A thin, lightweight notebook or a thick, heavy notebook crammed with lots of hardware? A basic desktop with a small monitor or a powerhouse desktop monitor the size of Rhode Island? Making the right choice isn't difficult if you think about what you want it to do. At the office, port 25 is blocked. What, simply what that means is I cannot send non-business email from there unless I use a webmail application, and I despise webmail. It's okay for us to use the company computer for incidental non-work tasks, so usage isn't the problem. Connectivity is the problem. As a workaround, we have an off-corporate LAN Wi-Fi network that doesn't block port 25, so anybody who has a personal device that has Wi-Fi can use it. Well, there's not much room on my desk. There's already a computer there, two large monitors, file folders, photos, and such. I needed a tiny PC that would fit in a space about the size of a sheet of paper. It needed to be able to run my email program and provide adequate browser performance. I knew I didn't want Windows 7 Starter, and that Home Premium was as low on the scale as I was willing to go. And I wanted to be able to dual-boot Linux. So I picked an Asus EEE PC with a 32-bit AMD Athlon 2 processor running at 1.7 gigahertz. has 2 gigabytes of RAM. Anything less is useless. A 320-gigabyte hard drive. That's enough for two operating systems and a fair amount of data. The 12.1-inch screen is big enough to see, and the machine has enough power for everything I named. The full Office 2010 suite is there, too, and performance is surprisingly good. It would be better if the machine had 4 gigabytes of RAM, but I didn't want to pay more than I did. The netbook does well the tasks that it's designed for. If my desk had been larger, I would simply have used the notebook that I take with me to presentations. This is a system with a considerably larger screen, a 64-bit Intel i5 processor, 6 gigabytes of RAM, and a 500-gigabyte hard drive. 
That machine has enough power that it can run the Adobe Creative Suite 5.5 at least acceptably. When performance is more important than portability, there's the i7 2.8 GHz 8-core CPU desktop system. 8 GB of RAM. All right, I'd prefer 16. And 4 terabytes of disk space. Hugely different specifications from the netbook to the desktop. In selecting hardware, it's important for you to figure out what you want to be able to do with the computer. And then buy what you need. In that regard, it's kind of like buying a car. Do you need a two-seater? A minivan? Or do you have to have an SUV? A Columbus radio station, CD101, has a modest following in Columbus, but a much larger following on the Internet. WWCD even has an entry in Wikipedia. What's interesting about the station is that WOSU took over its frequency several months ago, and WWCD moved to 102.5 on the FM dial, but it still calls itself... CD-101. Why? Well, the why probably has something to do with the Internet following. On the Internet, frequency doesn't matter. CD-101 is a known quantity, a known brand. If they'd changed the name to CD-102, then they'd have to build a following for that new brand. I haven't been involved with commercial radio for several years, but I still find the industry's machinations entertaining. Do you know, for example, that WWCD is licensed to operate in Baltimore, Ohio? Its studios are in Columbus, the transmitter is in Grove City, but the frequency, 102.5, was originally licensed to WHIZ in Zanesville. Ohio State University paid $4.8 million to purchase the 101.1 MHz frequency allocation, and simultaneously, WWCD agreed to purchase 102.5 from WHIZ. WOSU has launched a classical music service on the 101.5 frequency and converted the 89.7 MHz frequency to NPR News and Talk, simulcasting WOSU-AM. While the sale of the 101.1 MHz facility awaited approval from the FCC, WWCD broadcast over both 101.1 and 102.5. Although the station's primary brand is still CD-101, You'll sometimes hear them use the name CD-101 at 102.5. The future of terrestrial radio, the stuff we've known since the 1920s, seems a bit dim. At home, we listen to podcasts, and I thank you very much, to streaming audio from radio stations or other providers, or audio that we've stored on the computer. Until now, the automobile has been the last bastion for commercial radio, but even that is beginning to fade away. New cars often come with Internet connectivity. Today, the process is uneven at best and limited primarily to metro areas. That will change as better coverage comes to more areas. As cars become connected to the Internet, local radio stations no longer matter as much as they did. For many years, I wished I could listen to the afternoon classical music program from WQXR in New York City. But Lloyd Moss retired in 2006 after more than 50 years with the station. Now, if I wanted to listen to WQXR, I could. In other words, if your preferred radio station is in New York City or San Francisco, you can probably hear it online. If your favorite radio station is in Toronto or Chicago, you can hear it. If your favorite radio station is in Moscow or not on the air anywhere, you can also hear it. An interesting source for streamed audio is TuneIn.com. More than 50,000 terrestrial radio stations are listed there. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
In short circuits, I've used IDM's Ultra Edit since shortly after the last Ice Age, in part because of the company's extraordinarily well-designed text editor, and in part because of the company's enlightened approach to licensing. Essentially, IDM said I could install Ultra Edit on any number of computers that I use, as long as only one instance was active at any given time. Fair enough. Typically, that meant a desktop system at home, a desktop system at the office, and a notebook computer. You can imagine how surprised I was when version 17 arrived, and after installing it on the home computer and the notebook, my attempt at the office was met with a message that said there were no more activations available. Although I understand the challenge software vendors face, I believe that needlessly restrictive policies do little to deter thieves and a lot to inconvenience legitimate users. So I wrote to IDM to express my disappointment. Later that same day, I checked the IDM website and found a fact that explained the licensing. A few minutes later, I received a message from IDM's support explaining the situation. In short, UltraEdit's licensing platform was more than 17 years old and didn't support real-time updates. The new licensing manager will detect when a new version is available, notify the user if it's a free or paid update, and ask for permission to install the update. By default, IDM's activation system works for two computers, which would handle a desktop and a notebook, a very common situation. However, quoting IDM's message, for users like you that may need a few more activations to cover the machines you're using, we will gladly increment your number allowed from default of two to whatever you think you need. Well, I requested five activations, home and office desktops, netbook, and two notebook computers. In less than an hour, IDM had provided them. Not because I'm a journalist, and not because IDM wants to spin its story. As far as they're concerned, I'm just a regular user. And IDM believes in doing the right thing for its customers. ImageBurn is one of the most useful open-source disk-burning applications available. This week I discovered there's an update, so I decided to download it. So I went to the ImageBurn website, went to the download page, and there in the middle of the page was a gigantic orange arrow pointing down to the words DVD Burning Software. I'm on the download page. There's an arrow pointing down. That's, therefore, the download link, right? Wrong. Above that gigantic arrow is a tiny, tiny word that says advertisement. Well, it was a little after 6 a.m., and I didn't notice that tiny little advertisement. What I downloaded and actually installed wasn't what I wanted. The advertisement was placed there by Google. I have previously accused Google of putting profits ahead of ethics these days. Somewhere, Google forgot about the don't be evil and decided that a better motto would be, let's make money. So shame on Google for allowing this kind of advertising. And shame on the image burn developers for allowing Google to do this. I still recommend ImageBurn as an outstanding CD and DVD burning application, but I have to caution you to be very careful about where and what you click when you download it. Yeah, this is the end of the line, literally. Now help me understand this. Operating systems need to mark the end of a line, a symbol that's added when you press Enter. On a printing terminal, two things happen independently at the end of a line. 
And these are controlled by codes. One code is the new line character. The other is the carriage return character. New line moves the printing head down a line, or more accurately, moves the paper up a line. Carriage return moves the print head back to the starting position on the left, or if you're using a right-to-left language, to the right. DOS and Windows both use both of those codes, both return and new line, but other operating systems use just one or the other. Unix and Linux mark the end of the line with a new line character. The return is implied. Now here's the piece I don't understand. Apple uses the return alone. Not the new line alone, like Unix does, but Apple's OS X is really just Berkeley software distribution Unix. A free version of Unix that Apple selected as the basis for its operating system. Why did Apple change the default from new line to return? Is it just because they think different? So now we have three primary operating systems and three different new line characters. This is nuts. If any question remains in your mind about the resurgence of China as a world power, consider the fact that Intel has just reassigned an executive vice president to Beijing. Sean Maloney will oversee Intel's operations in China. Maloney's new title is chairman of Intel China. Intel says he will serve in that position for the next two to three years. He is the highest-ranking Intel officer to be posted to China. Intel has more than 5,000 employees in the country. Previously, Maloney was posted to Hong Kong before returning to Silicon Valley as the head of Intel's worldwide sales organization. And since 2009, he has been the co-general manager of the Intel Architecture Group. This is almost funny. Apple fanboys, and yes, fanboys is kind of a derisive term. Apple fanboys like to say that Apple products cannot have viruses or other malware inflicted on them. Apple has encouraged that point of view, too. It never made any sense because all computers are vulnerable to certain kinds of attacks. This time, Apple will find it hard to deny the problem because the bad guys used social engineering to run the scam. Advertisements for a program called Mac Defender started showing up earlier this month. Mac Defender would defeat viruses and malware, the ads said. The catch, well, Mac Defender is malware. And on the heels of Mac Defender comes Mac Guard. Mac Defender required the hapless Mac owner to make several mistakes. Mac Guard requires just a single mistake. So now Mac users may have to become familiar with bleepingcomputer.com, a site that has helped many Windows users eliminate malware from their computers. Bleepingcomputer.com now has instructions for those who have fallen victim to Mac Defender and Mac Guard. And even Apple now has an anti-Mac malware section on its support page. Should I mention at this point that I've been saying for years that some Mac users displayed an illogical false sense of security? Nah. That'd be too much like saying, I told you so. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.